Chapter 11 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 11 The Moon Calf Pastures. So we two poor terrestrial castaways lost in that wild growing moon jungle crawled in terror before the sounds that had come upon us. We crawled as it seemed a long time before we saw either selenite or moon calf, though we heard the bellowing and gruntulous noises of these latter continually drawing nearer to us. We crawled through stony ravines, over snow slopes, amidst fungi that ripped like thin bladders at our thrust, emitting a watery humour, over a perfect pavement of things like puffballs and beneath interminable thickets of scrub. And ever more helplessly our eyes sought for our abandoned sphere. The noise of the moon calves would at times be a vast, flat, calf-like sound. At times it rose to an amazed and wrathy bellowing, and again it would become a clogged bestial sound as though these unseen creatures had sought to eat and bellow at the same time. Our first view was but an inadequate transitory glimpse, yet none the less disturbing because it was incomplete. Cavour was crawling in front at the time, and he first was aware of their proximity. He stopped dead, arresting me with a single gesture. A crackling and smashing of the scrub appeared to be advancing directly upon us, and then, as we squatted close and endeavoured to judge of the nearness and direction of this noise, there came a terrific bellow behind us, so close and vehement that the tops of the bayonet scrub bent before it, and one felt the breath of it hot and moist. And, turning about, we saw indistinctly through a crowd of swaying stems the moon-calf's shining sides, and the long line of its back loomed out against the sky. Of course it is hard for me now to say how much I saw at that time, because my impressions were corrected by subsequent observation. First of all impressions was its enormous size. The girth of its body was some four score feet, its length perhaps two hundred. Its sides rose and fell with its laboured breathing. I perceived that its gigantic flabby body lay along the ground, and that its skin was of a corrugated white, dappling into blackness along the backbone. But of its feet we saw nothing. I think also that we saw then the profile, at least, of the almost brainless head, with its fat encumbered neck, its slobbering omnivorous mouth, its little nostrils and tight shut eyes, for the mooncalf invariably shut its eyes in the presence of the sun. We had a glimpse of a vast red pit as it opened its mouth to bleat and bellow again. We had a breath from the pit, and then the monster heeled over like a ship, dragged forward along the ground, creasing all its leathery skin, rolled again and so wallowed past us, smashing a path amidst the scrub, and was speedily hidden from our eyes by the dense interlacings beyond. Another appeared more distantly, and then another, and then as though he was guiding these animated lumps of provender to their pasture, a selenite came momentarily into ken. My grip upon Cavour's foot became convulsive at the sight of him, and we remained motionless and peering long after he had passed out of our range. By contrast with the moon calves, he seemed a trivial being, a mere ant, scarcely five feet high. He was wearing garments of some leathery substance so that no portion of his actual body appeared, but of this, of course, we were entirely ignorant. He presented himself, therefore, as a compact, 
bristling creature having much of the quality of a complicated insect, with whip-like tentacles and a clanging arm projecting from his shining cylindrical body case. The form of his head was hidden by his enormous, many-spiked helmet. We discovered afterwards that he used the spikes for prodding refractory moon calves, and a pair of goggles of darkened glass set very much at the side gave a bird-like quality to the metallic apparatus that covered his face. His arms did not project beyond his body case, and he carried himself upon short legs that, wrapped though they were in warm coverings, seemed to our terrestrial eyes inordinately flimsy. They had very short thighs, very long shanks, and little feet. In spite of his heavy-looking clothing, he was progressing with what would be, from the terrestrial point of view, very considerable strides, and his clanging arm was busy. The quality of his motion during the instant of his passing suggested haste and a certain anger, and soon after we had lost sight of him, we heard the bellow of a mooncalf change abruptly into a short, sharp squeal, followed by the scuffle of its acceleration. And gradually that bellowing receded, and then came to an end as if the pastures sought had been attained. We listened. For a space the moon world was still, but it was some time before we resumed our crawling search for the vanished sphere. When next we saw moon calves, they were some little distance away from us in a place of tumbled rocks. The less vertical surfaces of the rocks were thick with a speckled green plant growing in dense mossy clumps upon which these creatures were browsing. We stopped at the edge of the reeds amidst which we were crawling at the sight of them, peering out at them and looking round for a second glimpse of a selenite. They lay against their food like stupendous slugs, huge, greasy holes, eating greedily and noisily with a sort of sobbing avidity. They seemed monsters of mere fatness, clumsy and overwhelmed to a degree that would make a Smithfield ox seem a model of agility. Their busy, writhing, chewing mouths and eyes closed together with the appetizing sound of their munching made up an effect of animal enjoyment that was singularly stimulating to our empty frames. "'Hogs,' said Cavour, with unusual passion. "'Disgusting hogs!' and after one glare of angry envy, crawled off through the bushes to our right. I stayed long enough to see that the speckled plant was quite hopeless for human nourishment, then crawled after him, nibbling a quill of it between my teeth. Presently we were arrested again by the proximity of a selenite, and this time we were able to observe him more exactly. Now we could see that selenite covering was indeed clothing and not a sort of crustacean integument. He was quite similar in his costume to the former one we had glimpsed, except that ends of something like wadding were protruding from his neck, and he stood on a promontory of rock and moved his head this way and that as though he was surveying the crater. We lay quite still, fearing to attract his attention if we moved, and after a time he turned about and disappeared. We came upon another drove of moon calves bellowing up a ravine, and then we passed over a place of sounds. Sounds of beating machinery as if some huge hall of industry came near the surface there. And while these sounds were still about us, we came to the edge of a great open space, perhaps 200 yards in diameter and perfectly level. Save for a few lichens that advanced from its margin, this space was bare and presented a powdery surface of a dusty yellow colour. 
We were afraid to strike out across this space, but as it presented less obstruction to our crawling than the scrub, we went down upon it and began very circumspectly to skirt its edge. For a little while, the noises from below ceased, and everything, save for the faint stir of the growing vegetation, was very still. Then abruptly, there began an uproar, louder, more vehement, and nearer than any we had so far heard. Of a certainty it came from below. Instinctively, we crouched as flat as we could, ready for a prompt plunge into the thicket beside us. Each knock and throb seemed to vibrate through our bodies. Louder grew this throbbing, and beating, and that irregular vibration increased until the whole moon world seemed to be jerking and pulsing. "'Cover!' whispered Cavour, and I turned towards the bushes. At that instant came a thud like the thud of a gun, and then a thing happened that still haunts me in my dreams. I had turned my head to look at Cavour's face, and thrust out my hand in front of me as I did so, and my hand met nothing. I plunged suddenly into a bottomless hole. My chest had something hard, and I found myself with my chin on the edge of an unfathomable abyss that had suddenly opened beneath me, my hand extended stiffly into the void. The whole of that flat circular area was no more than a gigantic lid that was now sliding sideways from off the pit it had covered into a slot prepared for it. Had it not been for Cavour, I think I should have remained rigid hanging over this margin and staring into the enormous gulf below until at last the edges of the slot scraped me off and hurled me into its depths. But Cavour had not received the shock that had paralysed me. He had been a little distance from the edge when the lid had first opened, and perceiving the peril that held me helpless, gripped my legs and pulled me backward. I came into a sitting position, crawled away from the edge for a space on all fours, then staggered up and ran after him across the thundering, quivering sheet of metal. It seemed to be swinging open with a steadily accelerated velocity, and the bushes in front of me shifted sideways as I ran. I was none too soon. Cavour's back vanished amidst the bristling thicket, and as I scrambled up after him, the monstrous valve came into its position with a clang. For a long time we lay panting, not daring to approach the pit. But at last, very cautiously, and bit by bit, we crept into a position from which we could peer down. The bushes about us creaked and waved with the force of a breeze that was blowing down the shaft. We could see nothing at first except smooth vertical walls descending at last into an impenetrable black. And then, very gradually, we became aware of a number of very faint and little lights going to and fro. For a time, that stupendous gulf of mystery held us so that we forgot even our sphere. In time, as we grew more accustomed to the darkness, we could make out very small, dim, elusive shapes moving about among those needle-point illuminations. We peered amazed and incredulous, understanding so little that we could find no words to say. We could distinguish nothing that would give us a clue to the meaning of the faint shapes we saw. "'What can it be?' I asked. "'What can it be?' the engineering. They must live in these caverns during the night and come out during the day. Cavour, I said, can they be that it was something like men? That was not a man. We dare risk nothing. We dare do nothing until we find the sphere. 
We can do nothing until we find the sphere. He assented with a groan and stirred himself to move. He stared about him for a space, sighed and indicated a direction. We struck out through the jungle. For a time we crawled resolutely, then with diminishing vigour. Presently among great shapes of flabby purple there came a noise of trampling and cries about us. We lay close and for a long time the sounds went to and fro and very near, but this time we saw nothing. I tried to whisper to Cavour that I could hardly go without food much longer, but my mouth had become too dry for whispering. Cavour, I said, I must have food. He turned a face full of dismay towards me. It's a case for holding out, he said. But I must, I said, and look at my lips. I've been thirsty some time. If only some of that snow had remained. It's clean gone. We're driving from Arctic to tropical at the rate of a degree a minute. I gnawed my hand. The sphere, he said. There is nothing for it but the sphere. We roused ourselves to another spurt of crawling. My mind ran entirely on edible things, on the hissing profundity of summer drinks. More particularly, I craved for beer. I was haunted by the memory of a sixteen-gallon cask that had swaggered in my limpney cellar. I thought of the adjacent larder, and especially of steak and kidney pie, tender steak and plenty of kidney, and rich, thick gravy between. Ever and again I was seized with fits of hungry yawning. We came to flat places overgrown with fleshy red things, monstrous coralline growths. As we pushed against them, they snapped and broke. I noted the quality of the broken surfaces. The confounded stuff certainly looked of a biteable texture, and it seemed to me that it smelt rather well. I picked up a fragment and sniffed at it. Cavour, I said in a hoarse undertone. He glanced at me with his face screwed up. Don't, he said. I put down the fragment, and we crawled on through this tempting fleshiness for a space. Cavour, I asked. Why not? Poison, I heard him say, but he did not look round. We crawled some way before I decided. I'll chance it, said I. He made a belated gesture to prevent me. I stuffed my mouth full. He crouched, watching my face, his own twisted into the oddest expression. It's good, I said. Oh, Lord, he cried. He watched me munch, his face wrinkled between desire and disapproval, then suddenly succumbed to appetite and began to tear off huge mouthfuls. For a time we did nothing but eat. The stuff was not unlike a terrestrial mushroom, only it was much laxer in texture, and as one swallowed it, it warmed the throat. At first we experienced a mere mechanical satisfaction in eating. Then our blood began to run warmer, and we tingled at the lips and fingers, and then new and slightly irrelevant ideas came bubbling up in our minds. It's good, said I, infernally good. What a home for our surplus population. Our poor surplus population. And I broke off another large portion. It filled me with a curiously benevolent satisfaction that there was such good food in the moon. The depression of my hunger gave way to an irrational exhilaration. The dread and discomfort in which I had been living vanished entirely. I perceived the moon no longer as a planet from which I most earnestly desired the means of escape, 
but as a possible refuge from human destitution. I think I forgot the selenites, the moon calves, the lid, and the noises completely so soon as I had eaten that fungus. Cavour replied to my third repetition of my surplus population remark with similar words of approval. I felt that my head swam, but I put this down to the stimulating effect of food after a long fast. Excellent coverage, yours, Cavour, said I. Send only to the Tato. What do you mean? asked Cavour. Discovery of the moon. Send only to the Tato. I looked at him, shocked at his suddenly hoarse voice and by the badness of his articulation. It occurred to me in a flash that he was intoxicated, possibly by the fungus. It also occurred to me that he erred in imagining that he had discovered the moon. He had not discovered it, he had only reached it. I tried to lay my hand on his arm and explain this to him, but the issue was too subtle for his brain. It was also unexpectedly difficult to express. After a momentary attempt to understand me, I remember wondering if the fungus had made my eyes as fishy as his. He set off upon some observations on his own account. We are, he announced, with a solemn hic hiccup, the crushes of what we eat and drink. He repeated this, and as I was now in one of my subtle moods, I determined to dispute it. Possibly I wandered a little from the point, but Cavour certainly did not attend at all properly. He stood up as well as he could, putting a hand on my head to steady himself, which was disrespectful, and stood staring about him, quite devoid now of any fear of the moonbeings. I tried to point out that this was dangerous for some reason, that was not perfectly clear to me, but the word dangerous had somehow got mixed with indiscreet, and came out rather more like injurious than either, and after an attempt to disentangle them I resumed my argument, addressing myself principally to the unfamiliar but attentive coralline growths on either side. I felt that it was necessary to clear up this confusion between the moon and a potato at once. I wandered into a long parenthesis on the importance of precision of definition and argument. I did my best to ignore the fact that my bodily sensations were no longer agreeable. In some way that I have now forgotten, my mind was led back to projects of colonization. We must annex this moon, I said. There must be no shilly-shally. This is part of the white man's burthen. Cavour, we are hic satap, mean satraps. Nempire Caesar never dreamt. Bin all the newspapers. Cavoricia, Bedfordicia, Bedfordicia, hic, limited, mean unlimited practically. Certainly, I was intoxicated. I embarked upon an argument to show the infinite benefits our arrival would confer on the moon. I involved myself in a rather difficult proof that the arrival of Columbus was, on the whole, beneficial to America. I found I had forgotten the line of argument I had intended to pursue and continued to repeat, similar to Columbus, to fill up time. From that point, my memory of the action of that abominable fungus becomes confused. I remember vaguely that we declared our intention of standing no nonsense from any confounded insects, that we decided it ill became men to hide shamefully upon a mere satellite, 
that we equipped ourselves with huge armfuls of the fungus, whether for missile purposes or not I do not know, and heedless of the stabs of the bayonet scrub, we started forth into the sunshine. Almost immediately we must have come upon the Selenites. There were six of them, and they were marching in single file over a rocky place, making the most remarkable piping and whining sounds. They all seemed to become aware of us at once, all instantly became silent and motionless, like animals with their faces turned towards us. For a moment I was sobered. Insects, murmured Cavour, insects, and they think I'm going to crawl about on my stomach, on my vertebrated stomach? Stomach, he repeated slowly, as though he chewed the indignity. Then suddenly, with a sort of fury, he made three vast strides and leapt towards them. He leapt badly. He made a series of somersaults in the air, whirled right over them and vanished with an enormous splash amidst the cactus bladders. What the Selenites made of this amazing, and to my mind undignified, eruption from another planet I have no means of guessing. I seem to remember the sight of their backs as they ran in all directions, but I am not sure. All these last incidents before oblivion came are vague and faint in my mind. I know I made a step to follow Cavour, and tripped and fell headlong among the rocks. I was, I am certain, suddenly and vehemently ill. I seem to remember a violent struggle on being gripped by metallic clasps. My next clear recollection is that we were prisoners, that we knew not what depths beneath the moon's surface. We were in darkness amidst strange, distracting noises. Our bodies were covered with scratches and bruises, and our heads racked with pain. End of chapter 11
I haven't tied you, he answered. It's the Selenites. The Selenites. My mind hung on that for a space. Then my memories came back to me. The snowy desolation, the thawing of the air, the growth of the plants, our strange hopping and crawling among the rocks and vegetation of the crater. All the distress of our frantic search for the sphere returned to me. Finally, the opening of the great lid that covered the pit. Then as I strained to trace our later movements down to our present plight, the pain in my head became intolerable. I came to an insurmountable barrier, an obstinate blank. Cavour. Yes. Where are we? How should I know? Are we dead? What nonsense. They've got us then. He made no answer but a grunt. The lingering traces of the poison seemed to make him oddly irritable. What do you mean to do? How should I know what to do? Oh, very well, said I, and became silent. Presently I was roused from a stupor. Oh, Lord, I cried. I wish you'd stop that buzzing. We lapsed into silence again, listening to the dull confusion of noises like the muffled sound of a street or factory that filled our ears. I could make nothing of it. My mind pursued first one rhythm and then another and questioned it in vain. But after a long time I became aware of a new and sharper element, not mingling with the rest but standing out, as it were, against that cloudy background of sound. It was a series of relatively very little definite sounds, tappings and rubbings like a loose spray of ivy against a window or a bird moving about upon a box. We listened and peered about us, but the darkness was a velvet pall. There followed a noise like the subtle movement of the wards of a well-oiled clock, and then there appeared before me, hanging as it seemed in an immensity of black, a thin, bright line. Look, whispered Cavour very softly. What is it? I don't know. We stared. The thin, bright line became a band, and broader and paler. It took upon itself the quality of a bluish light falling upon a whitewashed wall. It ceased to be parallel-sided. It developed a deep indentation on one side. I turned to remark this to Cavour, and was amazed to see his ear in a brilliant illumination, all the rest of him in shadow. I twisted my head round as well as my bonds would permit. Cavour, I said, it's behind. His ear vanished, gave place to an eye. Suddenly the crack that had been admitting the light broadened out and revealed itself as the space of an opening door. Beyond was a sapphire vista and in the doorway stood a grotesque outline silhouetted against the glare. We both made convulsive efforts to turn and, failing, sat staring over our shoulders at this. My first impression was of some clumsy quadruped with lowered head. Then I perceived it was the slender pinched body and short and extremely attenuated bandy legs of a selenite, with his head depressed between his shoulders. He was without the helmet and body covering they wear upon the exterior. He was a blank black figure to us, but instinctively our imagination supplied features to his very human outline. I, at least, took it instantly that he was somewhat hunchbacked, with a high forehead and long features. He came forward three steps and paused for a time. His movement seemed absolutely noiseless. Then he came forward again. He walked like a bird. His feet fell one in front of the other. He stepped out of the ray of light that came through the doorway and it seemed as though he vanished altogether in the shadow. 
For a moment, my eyes sought him in the wrong place, and then I perceived him standing facing us both in the full light. Only the human features I had attributed to him were not there at all. Of course, I ought to have expected that, only I didn't. It came to me as an absolute, for a moment, an overwhelming shock. It seemed as though it wasn't a face, as though it must needs be a mask, a horror, a deformity that would presently be disavowed or explained. There was no nose, and the thing had dull, bulging eyes at the side, and the silhouette I had supposed they were ears. There were no ears. I have tried to draw one of these heads, but I cannot. There was a mouth downwardly curved like a human mouth in a face that stares ferociously. The neck on which the head was poised was jointed in three places, almost like the short joints of the leg of a crab. The joints of the limbs I could not see, because of the putty-like straps in which they were swathed, and which formed the only clothing the being wore. There the thing was, looking at us. At the time, my mind was taken up by the mad impossibility of the creature. I suppose he also was amazed, and with more reason perhaps for amazement than we. Only confound him, he did not show it. We did at least know what had brought about this meeting of incompatible creatures. But conceive how it would seem to decent Londoners, for example, to come upon a couple of living things as big as men, and absolutely unlike any other earthly animals, careering about among the sheep in Hyde Park. It must have taken him like that. Figure us. We were bound hand and foot, fagged and filthy, our beards two inches long, our faces scratched and bloody. Cavour, you must imagine, in his knickerbockers, torn in several places by the bayonet scrub, his Jaeger shirt and old cricket cap, his wiry hair wildly disordered, a tail to every quarter of the heavens. In that blue light his face did not look red, but very dark. His lips and the drying blood upon my hand seemed black. If possible, I was in a worse plight than he, on account of the yellow fungus into which I had jumped. Our jackets were unbuttoned, and our shoes had been taken off and lay at our feet and we were sitting with our backs to this queer bluish light, peering at such a monster as Durham might have invented. Cavour broke the silence, started to speak, went hoarse and cleared his throat. Outside began a terrific bellowing as if a mooncalf were in trouble. It ended in a shriek, and everything was still again. Presently the selenite turned about, flickered into the shadow, stood for a moment retrospective at the door, and then closed it on us and once more we were in that murmurous mystery of darkness into which we had awakened. End of chapter 12Mr. Cavour makes some suggestions. For a time, neither of us spoke. To focus together all the things we had brought upon ourselves seemed beyond my mental powers. They've got us, I said at last. It was that fungus. Well, if I hadn't taken it, we should have fainted and starved. We might have found the sphere. I lost my temper at his persistence and swore to myself. For a time, we hated one another in silence. I drummed with my fingers on the floor between my knees and gritted the links of my fetters together. Presently, I was forced to talk again. 
What do you make of it, anyhow? I asked humbly. They are reasonable creatures. They can make things and do things. Those lights we saw... He stopped. It was clear he could make nothing of it. When he spoke again, it was to confess. After all, they are more human than we had a right to expect. I suppose... He stopped irritatingly. Yes? I suppose, anyhow, on any planet where there is an intelligent animal, it will carry its brain case upward and have hands and walk erect. Presently he broke away in another direction. We are some way in, he said. I mean, perhaps a couple of thousand feet or more. Why? It's cooler, and our voices are so much louder. That faded quality, it has altogether gone, and the feeling in one's ears and throat. I had not noted that, but I did now. The air is denser. We must be some depths, a mile even. We may be inside the moon. We never thought of a world inside the moon. No. How could we? We might have done. Only one gets into habits of mind. He thought for a time. Now, he said, it seems such an obvious thing. Of course, the moon must be enormously cavernous, with an atmosphere within, and at the centre of its caverns a sea. One knew that the moon had a lower specific gravity than the earth. One knew that it had little air or water outside. One knew, too, that it was sister planet to the earth, and that it was unaccountable that it should be different in composition. The inference that it was hollowed out was as clear as day, and yet one never saw it as a fact. Kepler, of course. His voice had the interest now of a man who has discerned a pretty sequence of reasoning. Yes, he said, Kepler, with his sub-Volvani, was right after all. I wish you had taken the trouble to find that out before we came, I said. He answered nothing, buzzing to himself softly, as he pursued his thoughts. My temper was going. What do you think has become of the sphere, anyhow? I asked. Lost, he said, like a man who answers an uninteresting question. Among those plants? Unless they find it. And then? How can I tell? Cavour, I said, with a sort of hysterical bitterness. Things look bright for my company. He made no answer. Good Lord, I exclaimed, just think of all the trouble we took to get into this pickle. What did we come for? What are we after? What was the moon to us, or we to the moon? We wanted too much, we tried too much. We ought to have started the little things first. It was you, proposed the moon. Those Cavorite spring blinds. I am certain we could have worked them for terrestrial purposes. Certain? Did you really understand what I proposed? A steel cylinder? Rubbish, said Cavour. We ceased to converse. For a time, Cavour kept up a broken monologue without much help from me. If they find it, he began, if they find it, what would they do with it? Well, that's a question. It may be that's the question. They won't understand it anyhow. If they understood that sort of thing, they would have come long since to the earth, would they? Why shouldn't they? But they would have sent something. They couldn't keep their hands off such a possibility. No. But they will examine it. Clearly they are intelligent and inquisitive. They will examine it, get inside it, trifle with the studs. Off! 
That would mean the moon for us for all the rest of our lives. Strange creatures, strange knowledge. As for strange knowledge, said I, and language failed me. Look here, Bedford, said Cavour, you came on this expedition of your own free will. You said to me, call it prospecting. There's always risks in prospecting, especially when you do it unarmed and without thinking out every possibility. I was so taken up with the sphere, the thing rushed on us and carried us away. Rushed on me, you mean. Rushed on me just as much. How was I to know when I set to work on molecular physics that the business would bring me here, of all places? It's this accursed science, I cried. It's the very devil. The medieval priests and persecutors were right, and the moderns are all wrong. You tamper with it, and it offers you gifts, and directly you take them, it knocks you to pieces in some unexpected way. Old passions and new weapons. Now it upsets your religion. Now it upsets your social ideas. Now it whirls you off to desolation and misery. Anyhow, it's no use your quarrelling with me now. These creatures, these selenites, or whatever you choose to call them, have got us tied hand and foot. Whatever temper you choose to go through with it in, you will have to go through it with me. We have experiences before us that will need all our coolness. He paused, as if he required my assent, but I sat sulking. Confound your science, I said. The problem is communication. Gestures, I fear, will be different. Pointing, for example. No creatures but men and monkeys point. That was too obviously wrong for me. Pretty nearly every animal, I cried, points with its eyes or nose. Cavour meditated over that. Yes, he said at last, and we don't. There's such differences, such differences. One might, but how could I tell? There is speech, the sounds they make, a sort of fluting and piping. I don't see how we are to imitate that. Is it their speech, that sort of thing? They may have different senses, different means of communication. Of course, they are minds, and we are minds. There must be something in common. Who knows how far we might not get to an understanding? The things are outside us, I said. They're more different from us than the strangest animals on earth. They are a different clay. What is the good of talking like this? Cavour thought. I don't see that. Where there are minds, they will have something similar, even though they have been evolved on different planets. Of course, if it was a question of instincts, if we or they are no more than animals, well, are they? They are much more like ants on their hind legs than human beings, and whoever got to any sort of understanding with ants. But these machines and clothing. No, I don't hold with you, Bedford. The difference is wide. It's insurmountable. The resemblance must bridge it. I remember reading once a paper by the late Professor Galton on the possibility of communication between the planets. Unhappily, at that time, it did not seem probable that that would be of any material benefit to me, and I fear I did not give it the attention I should have done, in view of this state of affairs. Yet, now let me see. His idea was to begin with those broad truths that must underlie all conceivable mental existences and establish a basis on those. The great principles of geometry to begin with. He proposed to take some leading proposition of Euclid's, 
and show by construction that its truth was known to us. To demonstrate, for example, that the angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal, and that if the equal sides be produced, the angles on the other side of the base are equal also, or that the square on the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle is equal to the sum of the squares on the two other sides. By demonstrating our knowledge of these things, we should demonstrate our possession of a reasonable intelligence. Now suppose I, I might draw the geometrical figure with a wet finger, or even trace it in the air. He fell silent. I sat meditating his words. For a time, his wild hope of communication, of interpretation with these weird beings, held me. Then, that angry despair that was a part of my exhaustion and physical misery resumed its sway. I perceived with a sudden novel vividness the extraordinary folly of everything I had ever done. Ass, I said, oh ass, unutterable ass. I seemed to exist only to go about doing preposterous things. Why did we ever leave the thing? Hopping about looking for patents and concessions in the craters of the moon. If only we had had the sense to fasten a handkerchief to a stick to show where we had left the sphere. I subsided, fuming. It is clear, meditated Cavour, they are intelligent. One can hypothecate certain things. As they have not killed us at once, they must have ideas of mercy. Mercy, at any rate, of restraint. Possibly of intercourse. They may meet us. And this apartment and the glimpses we had of its guardian. These fetters. A high degree of intelligence. I wish to heaven, cried I, I'd thought even twice. Plunge after plunge. First one fluky start, and then another. It was my confidence in you. Why didn't I stick to my play? That was what I was equal to. That was my world and the life I was made for. I could have finished that play. I'm certain it was a good play. I had the scenario as good as done. Then, conceive it. Leaping to the moon. Practically, I've thrown my life away. That old woman in the inn near Canterbury had better sense. I looked up and stopped in mid-sentence. The darkness had given place to that bluish light again. The door was opening, and several noiseless selenites were coming into the chamber. I became quite still, staring at their grotesque faces. Then suddenly, my sense of disagreeable strangeness changed to interest. I perceived that the foremost and second carried bowls, one elemental need at least our minds could understand in common. They were bowls of some metal that, like our fetters, looked dark in that bluish light, and each contained a number of whitish fragments. All the cloudy pain and misery that oppressed me rushed together and took the shape of hunger. I eyed these bowls wolfishly, and though it returned to me in dreams, at that time it seemed a small matter that at the end of the arms that lowered one towards me were not hands, but a sort of flap and thumb like the end of an elephant's trunk. The stuff in the bowl was loose in texture and whitish-brown in colour, rather like lumps of some cold souffle, and it smelt faintly like mushrooms. From a partially divided carcass of a mooncalf that we presently saw, I'm inclined to believe it must have been mooncalf flesh. My hands were so tightly chained that I could barely contrive to reach the bowl, 
but when they saw the effort I made, two of them dexterously released one of the turns about my wrist. Their tentacle hands were soft and cold to my skin. I immediately seized a mouthful of the food. It had the same laxness and texture that all organic structures seemed to have upon the moon. It tasted rather like a gopher or a damp meringue, but in no way was it disagreeable. I took two other mouthfuls. I wanted foo, said I, tearing off a still larger piece. For a time we ate with an utter absence of self-consciousness. We ate and presently drank like tramps in a soup kitchen. Never before nor since have I been hungry to the ravenous pitch, and save that I have had this very experience, I could never have believed that, a quarter of a million miles out of our proper world, in utter perplexity of soul, surrounded, watched, touched by beings more grotesque and inhuman than the worst creations of a nightmare, it would be possible for me to eat in utter forgetfulness of all these things. They stood about us, watching us, and ever and again making a slight elusive twittering that stood, I suppose, in the stead of speech. I did not even shiver at their touch, and when the first zeal of my feeding was over, I could note that Cavour too had been eating with the same shameless abandon. End of chapter 13「Fourteen of the First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 14. Experiments in Intercourse When at last we had made an end of eating, the Selenites linked our hands closely together again and then untwisted the chains about our feet and rebound them so as to give us a limited freedom of movement. Then they unfastened the chains about our waists. To do all this, they had to handle us freely, and ever and again one of their queer heads came down close to my face, or a soft tentacle hand touched my head or neck. I don't remember that I was afraid then or repelled by their proximity. I think that our incurable anthropomorphism made us imagine there were human heads inside their masks. The skin, like everything else, looked bluish, but that was on account of the light, and it was hard and shiny, quite in the beetle-wing fashion, not soft or moist or hairy, as the vertebrated animals would be. Along the crest of the head was a low ridge of whitish spines running from back to front, and a much larger ridge curved on either side over the eyes. The selenite who untied me used his mouth to help his hands. "'They seem to be releasing us,' said Cavour. Remember, we are on the moon. Make no sudden movements. Are you going to try that geometry? If I get a chance, but of course they may make an advance first. We remained passive, and the Selenites, having finished their arrangements, stood back from us and seemed to be looking at us. I say it seemed to be because as their eyes were at the side and not in front, one had the same difficulty in determining the direction in which they were looking as one has in the case of a hen or a fish. They conversed with one another in their reedy tones that seemed to me impossible to imitate or define. The door behind us opened wider, and glancing over my shoulder, I saw a vague, large space beyond, in which quite a little crowd of selenites were standing. They seemed a curiously miscellaneous rabble. Do they want us to imitate those sounds? I asked Cavour. I don't think so, he said. 
It seems to me that they are trying to make us understand something. I can't make anything of their gestures. Do you notice this one, who is worrying with his head like a man with an uncomfortable collar? Let us shake our heads at him. We did that, in finding it ineffectual, attempted an imitation of the Selenites' movements. That seemed to interest them. At any rate, they all set up the same movement. But as that seemed to lead to nothing, we desisted at last, and so did they, and fell into a piping argument among themselves. Then one of them, shorter and very much thicker than the others, and with a particularly wide mouth, squatted down suddenly beside Cavour, and put his hands and feet in the same posture as Cavour's were bound, and then by a dexterous movement stood up. Cavour, I shouted, they want us to get up. He stared open-mouthed. That's it, he said. And with much heaving and grunting, because our hands were tied together, we contrived to struggle to our feet. The Selenites made way for our elephantine heavings and seemed to twitter more volubly. As soon as we were on our feet, the thick-set Selenite came and patted each of our faces with his tentacles and walked towards the open doorway. That also was plain enough, and we followed him. We saw that four of the Selenites standing in the doorway were much taller than the others, and clothed in the same manner as those we had seen in the crater, namely with spiked round helmets and cylindrical body cases, and that each of the four carried a goad with spike and guard made of that same dull-looking metal as the bowls. These four closed about us, one on either side of each of us, as we emerged from our chamber into the cavern from which the light had come. We did not get our impression of that cavern all at once. Our attention was taken up by the movements and attitudes of the Selenites immediately about us, and by the necessity of controlling our motion, lest we should startle and alarm them and ourselves by some excessive stride. In front of us was the short, thick-set being who had solved the problem of asking us to get up, moving with gestures that seemed, almost all of them, intelligible to us, inviting us to follow him. His spout-like face turned from one of us to the other with a quickness that was clearly interrogative. For a time, I say, we were taken up with these things. But at last the great place that formed a background to our movements asserted itself. It became apparent that the source of much, at least of the tumult of sounds which had filled our ears ever since we had recovered from the stupefaction of the fungus, was a vast mass of machinery in active movement, whose flying and whirling parts were visible indistinctly over the heads and between the bodies of the selenites who walked about us. And not only did the web of sounds that filled the air proceed from this mechanism, but also the peculiar blue light that irradiated the whole place. We had taken it as a natural thing that a subterranean cavern should be artificially lit, and even now, though the fact was patent to my eyes, I did not really grasp its import until presently the darkness came. The meaning and structure of this huge apparatus we saw I cannot explain because we, neither of us, learnt what it was for or how it worked. One after another, big shafts of metal flung out and up from its centre, their heads travelling in what seemed to me to be a parabolic path. Each dropped a sort of dangling arm as it rose towards the apex of its flight and plunged down into a vertical cylinder, forcing this down before it. About it moved the shapes of tenders, little figures that seemed vaguely different from the beings about us. 
As each of the three dangling arms of the machine plunged down, there was a clank and then a roaring, and out of the top of the vertical cylinder came pouring this incandescent substance that lit the place and ran over as milk runs over a boiling pot and dripped luminously into a tank of light below. It was a cold blue light, a sort of phosphorescent glow but infinitely brighter, and from the tanks into which it fell, it ran in conduits athwart the cavern. Thud, 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 came the sweeping arms of this unintelligible apparatus, and the light substance hissed and poured. At first the thing seemed only reasonably large and near to us, and then I saw how exceedingly little the selenites upon it seemed, and I realised the full immensity of cavern and machine. I looked from this tremendous affair to the faces of the selenites with a new respect. I stopped, and Cavour stopped, and stared at this thunderous engine. But this is stupendous, I said. What can it be for? Cavour's blue-lit face was full of an intelligent respect. I can't dream. Surely these beings. Men could not make a thing like that. Look at those arms. Are they on connecting rods? The thick-set selenite had gone some paces unheeded. He came back and stood between us and the great machine. I avoided seeing him because I guessed somehow that his idea was to beckon us onward. He walked away in the direction he wished us to go and turned and came back and flicked our faces to attract our attention. Kavor and I looked at one another. Cannot we show him we are interested in the machine, I said. Yes, said Kavor, we'll try that. He turned to our guide and smiled and pointed to the machine and pointed again and then to his head and then to the machine. By some defect of reasoning, he seemed to imagine that broken English might help these gestures. Me, look, I'm, he said. Me, think I'm very much. Yes. His behaviour seemed to check the Selenites in their desire for our progress for a moment. They faced one another, their queer heads moved, the twittering voices came quick and liquid. Then one of them, a lean, tall creature with a sort of mantle added to the putty in which the others were dressed, twisted his elephant trunk of a hand about Cavour's waist and pulled him gently to follow our guide, who again went on ahead. Cavour resisted. We may just as well begin explaining ourselves now. They may think we are new animals, a new sort of mooncalf, perhaps. It is most important that we should show an intelligent interest from the outset. He began to shake his head violently. No, no, he said. Me not come on one minute. Me look at I'm. Isn't there some geometrical point you might bring to a propos of that affair? I suggested as the Selenites conferred again. Possibly a parabolic, he began. He yelled loudly and leaped six feet or more. One of the four-armed moon men had pricked him with a goad. I turned on the goad-bearer behind me with a swift, threatening gesture, and he started back. This and Cavour's sudden shout and leap clearly astonished all the Selenites. They receded hastily, facing us. For one of those moments that seemed to last forever, we stood in angry protest, with a scattered semicircle of these inhuman beings about us. "'He pricked me,' said Cavour, with a catching of the voice. "'I saw him,' I answered. Confounded, I said to the Selenites. We are not going to stand that. What on earth do you take us for? I glanced quickly right and left. 
Far away, across the blue wilderness of Cavan, I saw a number of other Selenites running towards us. Broad and slender they were, and one with a larger head than the others. The cavern spread wide and low, and receded in every direction into darkness. Its roof, I remember, seemed to bulge down as if with the weight of the vast thickness of rocks that prisoned us. There was no way out of it. No way out of it. Above, below, in every direction was the unknown, and these inhuman creatures with goads and gestures confronting us, and we too, unsupported men. End of chapter 14「Chapter Fifteen of the First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter Fifteen: The Giddy Bridge. Just for a moment, that hostile pause endured. I suppose that both we and the Selenites did some very rapid thinking. My clearest impression was that there was nothing to put my back against and that we were bound to be surrounded and killed. The overwhelming folly of our presence there loomed over me in black, enormous reproach. Why had I ever launched myself on this mad and human expedition? Cavour came to my side and laid his hand on my arm. His pale and terrified face was ghastly in the blue light. We can't do anything, he said. It's a mistake. They don't understand. We must go as they want us to go. I looked down at him, and then at the fresh Selenites who were coming to help their fellows. If I had my hands free, it's no use, he panted. No, we'll go. And he turned about and led the way in the direction that had been indicated for us. I followed, trying to look as subdued as possible and feeling at the chains about my wrists. My blood was boiling. I noted nothing more of that cavern, though it seemed to take a long time before we had marched across it, or if I noted anything, I forgot it as I saw it. My thoughts were concentrated, I think, upon my chains and the selenites, and particularly upon the helmeted ones with the goads. At first they marched parallel with us, and at a respectful distance, but presently they were overtaken by three others, and then they drew nearer, until they were within arm's length again. I winced like a beaten horse as they came near to us. The shorter, thicker Selenite marched at first on our right flank, but presently came in front of us again. How well the picture of that grouping has bitten into my brain. The back of Cavour's downcast head just in front of me, and the dejected droop of his shoulders, and our guide's gaping visage perpetually jerking about him, and the go-bearers on either side, watchful yet open-mouthed, a blue monochrome. And after all, I do remember one other thing besides the purely personal affair, which is that a sort of gutter came presently across the floor of the cavern and then ran along by the side of the path of rock we followed. And it was full of the same bright blue luminous stuff that flowed out of the great machine. I walked close beside it, and I can testify it radiated not a particle of heat. It was brightly shining, and yet it was neither warmer nor colder than anything else in the cavern. Clang, clang, clang. We passed right under the thumping levers of another vast machine, and so came at last to a wide tunnel in which we could even hear the pad-pad of our shoeless feet, 
and which, save for the trickling thread of blue to the right of us, was quite unlit. The shadows made gigantic travesties of our shapes and those of the selenites on the irregular wall and roof of the tunnel. Ever and again crystals in the walls of the tunnel scintillated like gems. Ever and again the tunnel expanded into a stalactitic cavern or gave off branches that vanished into darkness. We seemed to be marching down that tunnel for a long time. Trickle, trickle, went the flowing light very softly, and our footfalls and their echoes made an irregular paddle, paddle. My mind settled down to the question of my chains. If I were to slip off one turn so, and then to twist it so, if I tried to do it very gradually, would they see I was slipping my wrist out of the looser turn? If they did, what would they do? Bedford, said Cavour, it goes down. It keeps on going down. His remark roused me from my sullen preoccupation. If they wanted to kill us, he said, dropping back to come level with me, there is no reason why they should not have done it. No, I admitted, that's true. They don't understand us, he said. They think we are merely strange animals, some wild sort of mooncalf birth, perhaps. It will be only when they have observed us better that they will begin to think we have minds. When you trace those geometrical problems, said I, it may be that. We tramped on for a space. You see, said Cavour, these may be selenites of a lower class. The infernal fools, said I viciously, glancing at their exasperating faces. If we endure what they do to us, we've got to endure it, said I. There may be others less stupid. This is the mere outer fringe of their world. It must go down and down, cavern, passage, tunnel, down at last to the sea, hundreds of miles below. His words made me think of the mile or so of rock and tunnel that might be over our heads already. It was like a weight dropping on my shoulders. Away from the sun and air, I said. Even a mine half a mile deep is stuffy. This is not, anyhow. It's probable. Ventilation. The air would blow from the dark side of the moon to the sunlit, and all the carbonic acid would well out there and feed those plants. Up this tunnel, for example, there is quite a breeze. And what a world it must be. The earnest we have in that shaft and those machines. And the goad, I said. Don't forget the goad. He walked a little in front of me for a time. Even that goad, he said. Well, I was angry at the time, but it was perhaps necessary we should get on. They have different skins and probably different nerves. They may not understand our objection, just as a being from Mars might not like our earthly habit of nudging. They'd better be careful how they nudge me. And about that geometry. After all, their way is a way of understanding, too. They begin with the elements of life and not of thought. Food, compulsion, pain. They strike at fundamentals. There's no doubt about that, I said. He went on to talk of the enormous and wonderful world into which we were being taken. I realised slowly from his tone that even now he was not absolutely in despair at the prospect of going ever deeper into this inhuman planet burrow. His mind ran on machines and invention, to the exclusion of a thousand dark things that beset me. It wasn't that he intended to make any use of these things, he simply wanted to know them. 
After all, he said, this is a tremendous occasion. It is the meeting of two worlds. What are we going to see? Think of what is below us here. We shan't see much if the light isn't better, I remarked. This is only the outer crust. Down below, on this scale, there will be everything. Do you notice how different they seem, one from another? The story we shall take back. Some rare sort of animal, I said, might comfort himself in that way while they were bringing him to the zoo. It doesn't follow that we are going to be shown all these things. When they find we have reasonable minds, said Cavour, they will want to learn about the earth. Even if they have no generous emotions, they will teach in order to learn, and the things they must know, the unanticipated things. He went on to speculate on the possibility of their knowing things he had never hoped to learn on earth, speculating in that way, with a raw wound from that goad already in his skin. Much that he said, I forget, for my attention was drawn to the fact that the tunnel along which we had been marching was opening out wider and wider. We seemed, from the feeling of the air, to be going out into a huge space. But how big the space might really be, we could not tell, because it was unlit. Our little stream of light ran in a dwindling thread and vanished far ahead. Presently, the rocky walls had vanished altogether on either hand. There was nothing to be seen but the path in front of us and the trickling, hurrying rivulet of blue phosphorescence. The figures of Cavour and the guiding selenite marched before me, the sides of their legs and heads that were towards the rivulet were clear and bright blue, their darkened sides, now that the reflection of the tunnel wall no longer lit them, merged indistinguishably in the darkness beyond. And soon I perceived that we were approaching a declivity of some sort, because the little blue stream dipped suddenly out of sight. In another moment, as it seemed, we had reached the edge. The shining stream gave one meander of hesitation and then rushed over. It fell to a depth at which the sound of its descent was absolutely lost to us. Far below was a bluish glow, a sort of blue mist at an infinite distance below, and the darkness the stream dropped out of became utterly void and black, save that a thing like a plank projected from the edge of the cliff and stretched out and faded and vanished altogether. There was a warm air blowing up out of the gulf. For a moment... I and Cavour stood as near the edge as we dared, peering into a blue-tinged profundity, and then our guide was pulling at my arm. Then he left me and walked to the end of that plank and stepped upon it, looking back. Then when he perceived we watched him, he turned about and went along it, walking as surely as though he was on firm earth. For a moment his form was distinct. Then he became a blue blur and then vanished into the obscurity. I became aware of some vague shape looming darkly out of the black. There was a pause. Surely, said Cavour. One of the other selenites walked a few paces out upon the plank and turned and looked back at us unconcernedly. The others stood ready to follow after us. Our guide's expectant figure reappeared. He was returning to see why we had not advanced. What is that beyond there? I asked. I can't see. We can't cross this at any price, said I. I could not go three steps on it, said Cavour, even with my hands free. We looked at each other's drawn faces in blank consternation. 
They can't know what it is to be giddy, said Cavour. It's quite impossible for us to walk that plank. I don't believe they see as we do. I've been watching them. I wonder if they know this is simply blackness for us. How can we make them understand? Anyhow, we must make them understand. I think we said these things with a vague half-hope the Selenites might somehow understand. I knew quite clearly that all that was needed was an explanation. Then, as I saw their faces, I realised that an explanation was impossible. Just here it was that our resemblances were not going to bridge our differences. Well, I wasn't going to walk the plank, anyhow. I slipped my wrist very quickly out of the coil of chain that was loose, and then began to twist my wrist in opposite directions. I was standing nearest to the bridge, and as I did this, two of the Selenites laid hold of me and pulled me gently towards it. I shook my head violently. No go, I said. No use. You don't understand. Another Selenite added his compulsion. I was forced to step forward. I've got an idea, said Cavour, but I knew his ideas. Look here, I exclaimed to the Selenites. Steady on. It's all very well for you. I sprang round upon my heel. I burst out into curses, for one of the armed Selenites had stabbed me behind with his goad. I wrenched my wrists free from the little tentacles that held them. I turned on the goad-bearer. Confound you, I cried. I've warned you of that. What on earth do you think I'm made of? To stick that into me. If you touch me again... By way of answer, he pricked me forthwith. I heard Cavour's voice in alarm and entreaty. Even then I think he wanted to compromise with these creatures. I say, Bedford, he cried. I know a way but the sting of that second stab seemed to set free some pent-up reserve of energy in my being. Instantly the link of the wrist chain snapped, and with it snapped all considerations that had held us unresisting in the hands of these moon creatures. For that second, at least, I was mad with fear and anger. I took no thought of consequences. I hit straight out at the face of the thing with the goad. The chain was twisted round my fist. There came another of these beastly surprises of which the moon world is full. My mailed hand seemed to go clean through him. He smashed like, like some softish sort of sweet with liquid in it. He broke right in. He squelched and splashed. It was like hitting a damp toadstool. The flimsy body went spinning a dozen yards and fell with a flabby impact. I was astonished. I was incredulous that any living thing could be so flimsy. For an instant I could have believed the whole thing a dream. Then it had become real and imminent again. Neither Cavour nor the other Selenite seemed to have done anything from the time when I had turned about to the time when the dead Selenite hit the ground. Everyone stood back from us too, everyone alert. That arrest seemed to last at least a second after the selenite was down. Everyone must have been taking the thing in. I seemed to remember myself standing with my arm half retracted, trying also to take it in. What next? clamoured my brain. What next? Then, in a moment, everyone was moving. I perceived we must get our chains loose and that before we could do this, the selenites had to be beaten off. I faced towards the group of these three goad-bearers. Instantly one threw his goad at me. It swished over my head, and I suppose went flying into the abyss behind. I leapt right at him with all my might as the goad flew over me. 
He turned to run as I jumped, and I bore him to the ground, came down right upon him, and slipped upon his smashed body and fell. He seemed to wriggle under my foot. I came into a sitting position, and on every hand the blue backs of the Selenites were receding into the darkness. I bent a link by main force and untwisted the chain that had hampered me about the ankles, and sprang to my feet with the chain in my hand. Another goad, flung javelin-wise, whistled by me, and I made a rush towards the darkness out of which it had come. Then I turned back towards Cavour, who was still standing in the light of the rivulet near the gulf, convulsively busy with his wrists, and at the same time jabbering nonsense about his idea. "'Come on!' I cried. "'My hands!' he answered. Then, realising that I dared not run back to him, because my ill-calculated steps might carry me over the edge, he came shuffling towards me, with his hands held out before him. I gripped his chains at once to unfasten them. "'Where are they?' he panted. "'Run away. They'll come back. They're throwing things. Which way shall we go?' By the light, to that tunnel, eh? Yes, said I, and his hands were free. I dropped on my knees and fell to work on his ankle bonds. Whack came something, I know not what, and splashed their livid streamlet into drops about us. Far away on our right a piping and whistling began. I whipped the chain off his feet and put it in his hand. Hit with that, I said, and without waiting for an answer, set off in big bounds along the path by which we had come. I had a nasty sort of feeling that these things could jump out of the darkness onto my back. I heard the impact of his leaps come following after me. We ran in vast strides, but that running, you must understand, was an altogether different thing from any running on earth. On earth one leaps and almost instantly hits the ground again, but on the moon, because of its weaker pull, one shot through the air for several seconds before one came to earth. In spite of our violent hurry, this gave an effect of long pauses, pauses in which one might have counted seven or eight. Step, and one soared off. All sorts of questions ran through my mind. Where are the Selenites? What would they do? Shall we ever get to that tunnel? Is Kavor far behind? Are they likely to cut him off? Then whack, stride, and off again for another step. I saw a selenite running in front of me, his legs going exactly as a man's would go on earth, saw him glance over his shoulder, and heard him shriek as he ran aside out of my way into the darkness. He was, I think, our guide, but I'm not sure. Then in another vast stride, the walls of the rock had come into view on either hand, and in two more strides, I was in the tunnel and tempering my pace to its low roof. I went on to a bend, then stopped and turned back, and plug, 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 Cavour came into view, splashing into the stream of blue light at every stride, and grew larger and blundered into me. We stood clutching each other. For a moment, at least, we had shaken off our captors and were alone. We were both very much out of breath. We spoke in panting, broken sentences. You've spoiled it all, panted Cavour. Nonsense, I cried. It was that or death. What are we to do? Hide. How can we? It's dark enough. But where? Up one of these side cabins. And then? Think. Right, come on. We strode on and presently came to a radiating dark cavern. Cavour was in front. 
He hesitated and chose a black mouth that seemed to promise good hiding. He went towards it and turned. It's dark, he said. Your legs and feet will light us. You're wet with that luminous stuff. But... A tumult of sounds, and in particular a sound like a clanging gong advancing up the main tunnel became audible. It was horribly suggestive of a tumultuous pursuit. We made a bolt for the unlit side cavern forthwith. As we ran along it, our way was lit by the irradiation of Cavour's legs. It's lucky, I panted, they took off our boots, or we should fill this place with clatter. On we rushed, taking as small steps as we could to avoid striking the roof of the cavern. After a time we seemed to be gaining on the uproar. It became muffled. It dwindled. It died away. I stopped and looked back, and I heard the pad of Cavour's feet receding. Then he stopped also. Bedford, he whispered, there's a sort of light in front of us. I looked, and at first I could see nothing. Then I perceived his head and shoulders dimly outlined against a fainter darkness. I saw also that this mitigation of the darkness was not blue, as all the other light within the moon had been, but a pallid grey, a very vague, faint white, the daylight colour. Cavour noted this difference as soon or sooner than I did, and I think, too, that it filled him with much the same wild hope. Bedford, he whispered, and his voice trembled. That light! It is possible! He did not dare to say the thing he hoped. Then came a pause. Suddenly I knew by the sound of his feet that he was striding towards that pallor. I followed him with a beating heart. End of chapter 15「Sixteen of the First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter sixteen Points of View The light grew stronger as we advanced. In a little time it was nearly as strong as the phosphorescence on Cavour's legs. Our tunnel was expanding into a cavern, and this new light was at the farther end of it. I perceived something that set my hopes leaping and bounding. Cavour, I said, it comes from above. I am certain it comes from above. He made no answer, but hurried on. Indisputably, it was a grey light, a silvery light. In another moment, we were beneath it. It filtered down through a chink in the walls of the cavern, and as I stared up, drip, came a drop of water upon my face. I started and stood aside. Drip, fell another drop quite audibly on the rocky floor. Cavour, I said. If one of us lifts the other, he can reach that crack. I'll lift you, he said, and incontinently hoisted me as though I was a baby. I thrust an arm into the crack, and just at my fingertips found a little ledge by which I could hold. I could see the white light was very much brighter now. I pulled myself up by two fingers with scarcely an effort, though on earth I weighed twelve stone, reached to a still higher corner of rock, and so got my feet on the narrow ledge. I stood up and searched up the rocks with my fingers. The cleft broadened out upwardly. It's climbable, I said to Cavour. Can you jump up to my hand if I hold it down to you? I wedged myself between the sides of the cleft, rested knee and foot on the ledge, and extended my hand. 
I could not see Cavour, but I could hear the rustle of his movements as he crouched to spring. Then, whack, and he was hanging to my arm, and no heavier than a kitten. I lugged him up until he had a hand on my ledge and could release me. Confound it, I said. Anyone could be a mountaineer on the moon, and so set myself in earnest to the climbing. For a few minutes I clambered steadily, and then I looked up again. The cleft opened out steadily, and the light was brighter. Only, it was not daylight after all. In another moment I could see what it was, and at the sight I could have beaten my head against the rocks with disappointment. For I beheld simply an irregularly sloping open space, and all over its slanting floor stood a forest of little club-shaped fungi, each shining gloriously with that pinkish, silvery light. For a moment I stared at their soft radiance, then sprang forward and upward among them. I plucked up half a dozen and flung them against the rocks, and then sat down, laughing bitterly as Cavour's ruddy face came into view. It's phosphorescence again, I said. No need to hurry. Sit down and make yourself at home. And as he spluttered over our disappointment, I began to lob more of these growths into the cleft. I thought it was daylight, he said. Daylight, cried I. Daybreak, sunset, clouds and windy skies. Shall we ever see such things again? As I spoke, a little picture of our world seemed to rise before me, bright and little and clear, like the background of some old Italian picture. The sky that changes, and the sea that changes, and the hills and the green trees and the towns and cities shining in the sun. Think of a wet roof at sunset, Cavour. Think of the windows of a westward house. He made no answer. Here we are burrowing in this beastly world that isn't a world, with its inky ocean hidden in some abominable blackness below, and outside that torrid day and that death stillness of night. And all these things that are chasing us now, beastly men of leather, insect men, that come out of a nightmare. After all, they're right. What business have we here smashing them and disturbing their world? For all we know, the whole planet is up and after us already. In a minute we may hear them whimpering and their gongs going. What are we to do? Where are we to go? Here we are as comfortable as snakes from Jamrax loose in a Surbiton villa. It was your fault, said Cavour. My fault, I shouted. Good Lord, I had an idea. Curse your ideas. If we had refused to budge, under those goads? Yes, they would have carried us. Over that bridge? Yes, they must have carried us from outside. I'd rather be carried by a fly across a ceiling. Good heavens! I resumed my destruction of the fungi. Then suddenly I saw something that struck me even then. Cavour, I said, these chains are of gold. He was thinking intently, with his hands gripping his cheeks. He turned his head slowly and stared at me, and, when I had repeated my words, at the twisted chain about his right hand. So they are, he said. So they are. His face lost its transitory interest even as he looked. He hesitated for a moment, then went on with his interrupted meditation. I sat for a space puzzling over the fact that I had only just observed this, until I considered the blue light in which we had been, and which had taken all the colour out of the metal. 
And from that discovery, I also started upon a train of thought that carried me wide and far. I forgot that I had just been asking what business we had in the moon. Gold. It was Cavour who spoke first. It seems to me that there are two courses open to us. Well, either we can attempt to make our way, fight our way if necessary, out to the exterior again and then hunt for our sphere until we find it, or the cold of the night comes to kill us, or else... He paused. Yes, I said, though I knew what was coming. We might attempt once more to establish some sort of understanding with the minds of the people in the moon. So far as I'm concerned, it's the first. I doubt I don't. You see, said Cavour, I do not think we can judge the Selenites by what we have seen of them. Their central world, their civilised world, will be far below in the profounder caverns about their sea. This region of the crust in which we are is an outlying district, a pastoral region. At any rate, that is my interpretation. These Selenites we have seen may be only the equivalent of cowboys and engine tenders. Their use of goads, in all probability mooncalf goads, the lack of imagination they show in expecting us to be able to do just what they can do. Their indisputable brutality all seem to point to something of that sort. But if we endured, neither of us could endure a six-inch plank across the bottomless pit for very long. No, said Cavour. But then, I won't, I said. He discovered a new line of possibilities. Well, suppose we got ourselves into some corner where we could defend ourselves against these hinds and labourers. If, for example, we could hold out for a week or so, it is probable that the news of our appearance would filter down to the more intelligent and populous parts. If they exist, they must exist. Or whence came those tremendous machines? That's possible, but it's the worst of the two chances. We might write up inscriptions on walls. How do we know their eyes would see the sort of marks we made? If we cut them, it's possible, of course. I took up a new thread of thought. After all, I said, I suppose you don't think these Selenites so infinitely wiser than men. They must know a lot more, or at least a lot of different things. Yes, but... I hesitated. I think you'll quite admit, Cabor, that you're rather an exceptional man. How? Well, you... You're a rather lonely man. Have been, that is. You haven't married. Never wanted to. But why? And you never grew richer than you happened to be. Never wanted that either. You've just rooted after knowledge? Well, a certain curiosity is natural. You think so? That's just it. You think every other mind wants to know. I remember once when I asked you why you conducted all these researches. You said you wanted your FRS, and to have the stuff called Cavorite, and things like that. You know perfectly well you didn't do it for that. But at the time, my question took you by surprise and you felt you ought to have something to look like a motive. Really, you conducted researches because you had to. It's your twist. Perhaps it is. It isn't one man in a million has that twist. Most men want, 
well, various things, but very few want knowledge for its own sake. I don't know perfectly well. Now these Selenites seem to be a driving, busy sort of being, but how do you know that even the most intelligent will take an interest in us or our world? I don't believe they'll even know we have a world. They never come out at night. They'd freeze if they did. They've probably never seen any heavenly body at all except the blazing sun. How are they to know there is another world? What does it matter to them if they do? Well, even if they have had a glimpse of a few stars or even the Earth crescent, what of that? Why should people living inside a planet trouble to observe that sort of thing? Men wouldn't have done it except for the seasons and sailing. Why should the moon people? Well, suppose there are a few philosophers like yourself. They are just the very Selenites who will never have heard of our existence. Suppose a Selenite had dropped on the earth when you were at Limpney. You'd have been the last man in the world to hear he had come. You never read a newspaper. You see the chances against you. Well, it's for these chances we're sitting here doing nothing while precious time is flying. I tell you, we've got into a fix. We've come unarmed. We've lost our sphere. We've got no food. We've shown ourselves to the Selenites and made them think we're strange, strong, dangerous animals. And unless these Selenites are perfect fools, they'll set about now and hunt us till they find us. And when they find us, they'll try to take us if they can, and kill us if they can't. And that's the end of the matter. If they take us, they'll probably kill us, through some misunderstanding. After we're done for, they may discuss us perhaps, but we shan't get much fun out of that. Go on. On the other hand, here's gold knocking about like cast iron at home. If only we can get some of it back, if only we can find our sphere again before they do, and get back, then, yes, we might put the thing on a sounder footing, come back in a bigger sphere with guns. Good Lord, cried Cavour, as though that was horrible. I shied another luminous fungus down the cleft. Look here, Cavour, I said. I've half the voting power anyhow in this affair, and this is a case for a practical man. I'm a practical man, and you are not. I'm not going to trust to selenites and geometrical diagrams if I can help it. That's all. Get back. Drop all the secrecy, or most of it, and come again. He reflected. When I came to the moon, he said, I ought to have come alone. The question before the meeting, I said, is how to get back to the sphere. For a time we nursed our knees in silence. Then he seemed to decide for my reasons. I think, he said, one can get data. It is clear that while the sun is on this side of the moon, the air will be blowing through this planet sponge from the dark side hither. On this side, at any rate, the air will be expanding and flowing out of the moon caverns into the craters. Very well, there's a draft here. So there is. And that means that this is not a dead end. Somewhere behind us, this cleft goes on and up. The draft is blowing up, and that is the way we have to go. If we try to get up any sort of chimney or gully there is, we shall not only get out of these passages where they are hunting for us, but suppose the gully is too narrow. We'll come down again. Shh! I said suddenly. What's that? We listened. 
At first it was an indistinct murmur, and then one picked out the clang of a gong. They must think we are moon calves, said I, to be frightened at that. They're coming along that passage, said Kabor. They must be. They'll not think of the cleft, they'll go past. I listened again for a space. This time, I whispered, they're likely to have some sort of weapon. Then suddenly I sprang to my feet. Good heavens, Kabor, I cried. But they will. They'll see the fungi I have been pitching down. They'll... I didn't finish my sentence. I turned about and made a leap over the fungus tops towards the upper end of the cavity. I saw that the space turned upward and became a draughty cleft again, ascending to impenetrable darkness. I was about to clamber up into this, and then with a happy inspiration turned back. What are you doing? asked Kabor. Go on, said I, and went back and got two of the shining fungi, and putting one into the breast pocket of my flannel jacket so that it stuck out to light our climbing, went back with the other for Kavor. The noise of the selenites was now so loud that it seemed they must be already beneath the cleft, but it might be they would have difficulty in clambering into it, or might hesitate to ascend it against our possible resistance. At any rate, we had now the comforting knowledge of the enormous muscular superiority our birth in another planet gave us. In another minute I was clambering with gigantic vigour after Cavour's blue-lit heels. End of chapter 16Chapter 17 of The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 17 The Fight in the Cave of the Moon Butchers. I do not know how far we clambered before we came to the grating. It may be we ascended only a few hundred feet, but at the time it seemed to me. We might have hauled and jammed and hopped and wedged ourselves through a mile or more of vertical ascent. Whenever I recall that time, there comes into my head the heavy clank of our golden chains that followed every movement. Very soon my knuckles and knees were raw, and I had a bruise on one cheek. After a time, the first violence of our efforts diminished and our movements became more deliberate and less painful. The noise of the pursuing selenites had died away altogether. It seemed almost as though they had not traced us up the crack after all, in spite of the tell-tale heap of broken fungi that must have lain beneath it. At times the cleft narrowed so much that we could scarce squeeze up it. At others it expanded into great druzy cavities, studded with prickly crystals or thickly beset with dull shining fungoid pimples. Sometimes it twisted spirally, and at other times slanted down nearly to the horizontal direction. Ever and again there was the intermittent drip and trickle of water by us. Once or twice it seemed to us that small living things had rustled out of our reach, but what they were we never saw. They may have been venomous beasts for all I know, but they did us no harm, and we were now tuned to a pitch when a weird creeping thing more or less mattered little. And at last... Far above came the familiar bluish light again, and then we saw that it filtered through a grating that barred our way. We whispered as we pointed this out to one another, and became more and more cautious in our ascent. Presently we were close under the grating, and by pressing my face against its bars I could see a limited portion of the cavern beyond. 
It was clearly a large space, and lit no doubt by some rivulet of the same blue light that we had seen flow from the beating machinery. An intermittent trickle of water dropped ever and again between the bars near my face. My first endeavour was naturally to see what might be upon the floor of the cavern, but our grating lay in a depression whose rim hid all this from our eyes. Our foiled attention then fell back upon the suggestion of the various sounds we heard, and presently my eye caught a number of faint shadows that played across the dim roof far overhead. Indisputably, there were several selenites, perhaps a considerable number in this space, for we could hear the noises of their intercourse and faint sounds that I identified as their footfalls. There was also a succession of regularly repeated sounds, chid, 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 which began and ceased, suggestive of a knife or spade hacking at some soft substance. Then came a clank as if of chains, a whistle and a rumble as of a truck running over a hollowed place, and then again that chid, chid, chid resumed. The shadows told of shapes that moved quickly and rhythmically, in agreement with that regular sound, and rested when it ceased. We put our heads close together and began to discuss these things in noiseless whispers. They are occupied, I said. They are occupied in some way. Yes, they're not seeking us or thinking of us. Perhaps they have not heard of us. Those others are hunting about below. If suddenly we appeared here, we looked at one another. There might be a chance to parley, said Cavour. No, I said, not as we are. For a space we remained each occupied by his own thoughts. Chid, 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 went the chipping, and the shadows moved to and fro. I looked at the grating. It's flimsy, I said. We might bend two of the bars and crawl through. We wasted a little time in vague discussion, then I took one of the bars in both hands and got my feet up against the rock until they were almost on a level with my head and so thrust against the bar. It bent so suddenly that I almost slipped. I clambered about and bent the adjacent bar in the opposite direction and then took the luminous fungus from my pocket and dropped it down the fissure. Don't do anything hastily, whispered Cavour as I twisted myself up through the opening I had enlarged. I had a glimpse of busy figures as I came through the grating and immediately bent down so that the rim of the depression in which the grating lay hid me from their eyes and so lay flat, signalling advice to Cavour as he also prepared to come through. Presently we were side by side in the depression, peering over the edge at the cavern and its occupants. It was a much larger cavern than we had supposed from our first glimpse of it, and we looked up from the lowest portion of its sloping floor. It widened out as it receded from us, and its roof came down and hid the remoter portion altogether. And lying in a line along its length, vanishing at last far away in that tremendous perspective, were a number of huge shapes, huge pallid holes, upon which the selenites were busy. At first they seemed big white cylinders of vague import, then I noted the heads upon them lying towards us, eyeless and skinless like the heads of sheep at a butcher's, and perceived they were the carcasses of moon calves being cut up, much as the crew of a whaler might cut up a moored whale. They were cutting off the flesh in strips, 
and on some of the farther trunks the white ribs were showing. It was the sound of their hatchets that made that chid, chid, chid. Some way away, a thing like a trolley cable, drawn and loaded with chunks of lax meat, was running up the slope of the cavern floor. This enormous long avenue of holes that were destined to be food gave us a sense of the vast populousness of the moon world, second only to the effect of our first glimpse down the shaft. It seemed to me at first that the selenites must be standing on trestle-supported planks, and then I saw that the planks and supports and the hatchets were really of the same leaden hue as my fetus had seemed before white light came to bear on them. A number of very thick-looking crowbars lay about the floor, and had apparently assisted to turn the dead moon calf over on its side. They were perhaps six feet long, with shaped handles, very tempting-looking weapons. The whole place was lit by three traverse streams of the blue fluid. I do not remember seeing any wooden things on the moon. Doors, tables, everything corresponding to our terrestrial joinery was made of metal, and I believe for the most part of gold, which as a metal would, of course, naturally recommend itself, other things being equal on account of the ease in working it and its toughness and durability. We lay for a long time noting all these things in silence. Well, said Cavour at last. I crouched over and turned to him. I had come upon a brilliant idea. Unless they lowered those bodies by a crane, I said, we must be nearer the surface than I thought. Why? The moon calf doesn't hop and it hasn't got wings. He peered over the edge of the hollow again. I wonder now, he began, after all, we have never gone far from the surface. I stopped him by a grip on his arm. I had heard a noise from the cleft below us. We twisted ourselves about and lay as still as death with every sense alert. In a little while I did not doubt that something was quietly ascending the cleft. Very slowly and quite noiselessly, I assured myself of a good grip on my chain and waited for that something to appear. Just look at those chaps with the hatchets again, I said. They're all right, said Cabor. I took a sort of provisional aim at the gap in the grating. I could hear now quite distinctly the soft twittering of the ascending selenites, the dab of their hands against the rock and the falling of dust from their grips as they clambered. Then I could see that there was something moving dimly in the blackness below the grating, but what it might be I could not distinguish. The whole thing seemed to hang fire just for a moment. Then, smash! I had sprung to my feet, struck savagely at something that had flashed out at me. It was the keen point of a spear. I have thought since that its length and the narrowness of the cleft must have prevented its being sloped to reach me. Anyhow, it shot out from the grating like the tongue of a snake, and missed and flew back and flashed again. But the second time, I snatched and caught it and wrenched it away, but not before another had darted ineffectually at me. I shouted with triumph as I felt the hold of the selenite resist my pull for a moment and give, and then I was jabbing down through the bars amid squeals from the darkness, and Cavour had snapped off the other sphere and was leaping and flourishing it beside me, and making inefficient jabs. Clang, clang, came up through the grating, 
and then an axe hurtled through the air and whacked against the rocks beyond, to remind me of the fleshes at the carcasses up the cavern. I turned, and they were all coming towards us in open order, waving their axes. They were short, thick little beggars with long arms, strikingly different from the ones we had seen before. If they had not heard of us before, they must have realised the situation with incredible swiftness. I stared at them for a moment, spear in hand. Guard that grating, Kabor, I cried, howled to intimidate them and rushed to meet them. Two of them missed with their hatchets and the rest fled incontinently. Then the two also were sprinting away up the cavern with hands clenched and heads down. I never saw men run like them. I knew the spear I had was no good for me. It was thin and flimsy, only effectual for a thrust and too long for a quick recover. Though I only chased the Selenites as far as the first carcass and stopped there and picked up one of the crowbars that were lying about, it felt comfortingly heavy and equal to smashing any number of Selenites. I threw away my spear and picked up a second crowbar for the other hand. I felt five times better than I had with the spear. I shook the two threateningly at the Selenites who had come to halt in a little crowd far away up the cavern and then turned about to look at Kabor. He was leaping from side to side of the grating, making threatening jabs with his broken spear. That was all right. It would keep the Selenites down, for a time at any rate. I looked up the cavern again. What on earth were we going to do now? We were cornered in a sort of way already, but these butchers up the cavern had been surprised. They were probably scared, and they had no special weapons, only those little hatchets of theirs. And that way lay escape. Their sturdy little forms, ever so much shorter and thicker than the mooncalf herds, were scattered up the slope in a way that was eloquent of indecision. I had the moral advantage of a mad bull in a street. But for all that, there seemed a tremendous crowd of them. Very probably there was. Those Selenites down the cleft had certainly some infernally long spears. It might be they had other surprises for us. But, confound it, if we charged up the cave, we should let them up behind us. And if we didn't, those little brutes up the cave would probably get reinforced. Heaven alone knew what tremendous engines of warfare, guns, bombs, terrestrial torpedoes, this unknown world below our feet, this vaster world of which we had only pricked the outer cuticle, might not presently send up to our destruction. It became clear the only thing to do was to charge. It became clearer as the legs of a number of fresh Selenites appeared running down the cavern towards us. Bedford, cried Cavour, and behold, he was halfway between me and the grating. Go back, I cried, what are you doing? They've got, it's like a gun. And struggling in the grating between those defensive spears appeared the head and shoulders of a singularly lean and angular Selenite bearing some complicated apparatus. I realised Cavour's utter incapacity for the fight we had in hand. For a moment I hesitated. Then I rushed past him, whirling my crowbars and shouting to confound the aim of the Selenite. He was aiming in the queerest way with the thing against his stomach. Chuzz! The thing wasn't a gun. It went off like a crossbow moor and dropped me in the middle of a leap. I didn't fall down. 
I simply came down a little shorter than I should have done if I hadn't been hit, and from the feel of my shoulder the thing might have tapped me and glanced off. Then my left hand hit against the shaft, and I perceived there was a sort of spear sticking half through my shoulder. The moment after I got home with the crowbar in my right hand and hit the selenite fair and square. He collapsed, he crushed and crumpled, his head smashed like an egg. I dropped a crowbar, pulled the spear out of my shoulder and began to jab it down the grating into the darkness. At each jab came a shriek and twitter. Finally, I hurled the spear down upon them with all my strength, leapt up, picked up the crowbar again and started for the multitude up the cavern. Bedford! cried Cabor. Bedford! as I flew past him. I seemed to remember his footsteps coming on behind me. Step, leap, whack, step, leap. Each leap seemed to last ages. With each, the cave opened out and the number of selenites visible increased. At first they seemed all running about like ants in a disturbed anthill, one or two waving hatchets and coming to meet me, more running away, some bolting sideways into the avenue of carcasses, then presently others came in sight carrying spears and then others. I saw a most extraordinary thing, all hands and feet, bolting for cover. The cavern grew darker farther up. Flick! Something flew over my head. Flick! As I soared in mid-stride, I saw a spear hit and quiver in one of the carcasses to my left. Then, as I came down, one hit the ground before me, and I heard the remote chuzz with which their things were fired. Flick! Flick! For a moment it was a shower. They were volleying. I stopped dead. I don't think I thought clearly then. I seem to remember a kind of stereotyped phrase running through my mind. Zone of fire, seek cover. I know I made a dash for the space between two of the carcasses and stood there panting and feeling very wicked. I looked round for Cavour, and for a moment it seemed as if he had vanished from the world. Then he came out of the darkness between the row of the carcasses and the rocky wall of the cavern. I saw his little face, dark and blue, and shining with perspiration and emotion. He was saying something, but what it was I did not heed. I had realised that we might work from mooncalf to mooncalf up the cave until we were near enough to charge home. It was charge or nothing. Come on, I said, and led the way. Bedford, he cried unavailingly. My mind was busy as we went up that narrow alley between the dead bodies and the wall of the cavern. The rocks curved about, they could not enfilade us. Though in that narrow space we could not leap, yet with our earthborn strength we were still able to go very much faster than the Selenites. I reckoned we should presently come right among them. Once we were on them, they would be nearly as formidable as black beetles. Only there would first of all be a volley. I thought of a stratagem. I whipped off my flannel jacket as I ran. Bedford, panted Cavour behind me. I glanced back. What? said I. He was pointing upward over the carcasses. White light, he said. White light again. I looked, and it was even so a faint white ghost of light in the remoter cavern roof. That seemed to give me double strength. Keep close, I said. A flat, long selenite dashed out of the darkness and squealed and fled. I halted and stopped Cavour with my hand. 
I hung my jacket over my crowbar, ducked round the next carcass, dropped jacket and crowbar, showed myself and darted back. Chuzz! Flick! Just one arrow came. We were close on the Selenites and they were standing in a crowd, broad, short and tall together, with a little battery of their shooting implements pointing down the cave. Three or four other arrows followed the first, then their fire ceased. I stuck out my head and escaped by a hair's breadth. This time I drew a dozen shots or more and heard the Selenite shouting and twittering as if with excitement as they shot. I picked up jacket and crowbar again. Now, said I, and thrust out the jacket. Chuzz! Chuzz! In an instant my jacket had grown a thick beard of arrows and they were quivering all over the carcass behind us. Instantly I slipped the crowbar out of the jacket, dropped the jacket, for all I know to the contrary it is lying up there in the moon now, and rushed out upon them. For a minute perhaps it was massacre. I was too fierce to discriminate and the Selenites were probably too scared to fight. At any rate they made no sort of fight against me. I saw scarlet, as the saying is. I remember I seemed to be wading among those leathery thin things as a man wades through tall grass, mowing and hitting, first right, then left, smash. Little drops of moisture flew about. I trod on things that crushed and piped and went slippery. The crowd seemed to open and close and flow like water. They seemed to have no combined plan whatever. There were spears flew about me, I was grazed over the ear by one. I was stabbed once in the arm and once in the cheek, but I only found that out afterwards, when the blood had had time to run and cool and feel wet. What Cavour did I do not know. For a space it seemed that this fighting had lasted for an age and must needs go on forever. Then suddenly it was all over, and there was nothing to be seen but the backs of heads bobbing up and down as their owners ran in all directions. I seemed altogether unhurt. I ran forward some paces, shouting, then turned about. I was amazed. I had come right through them in vast flying strides. They were all behind me, and running hither and thither to hide. I felt an enormous astonishment at the evaporation of the great fight into which I had hurled myself, and not a little exultation. It did not seem to me that I had discovered the Selenites were unexpectedly flimsy, but that I was unexpectedly strong. I laughed stupidly. This fantastic moon! I glanced for a moment at the smashed and writhing bodies that were scattered over the cabin floor, with a vague idea of further violence, then hurried on after Cavour. End of chapter 17「Chapter Eighteen of the First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter Eighteen In the Sunlight. Presently we saw that the cavern before us opened upon a hazy void. In another moment we had emerged upon a sort of slanting gallery that projected into a vast circular space a huge cylindrical pit running vertically up and down. Round this pit the slanting gallery ran without any parapet or protection for a turn and a half, and then plunged high above 
into the rock again. Somehow it reminded me then of one of those spiral turns of the railway through the St. Gothard. It was all tremendously huge. I can scarcely hope to convey to you the titanic proportion of all that place, the titanic effect of it. Our eyes followed up the vast declivity of the pit wall, and overhead and far above we beheld a round opening set with faint stars, and half of the lip about it well nigh blinding with the white light of the sun. At that we cried aloud simultaneously. Come on, I said, leading the way. But there, said Cavour, and very carefully stepped nearer the edge of the gallery. I followed his example and craned forward and looked down, but I was dazzled by that gleam of light above, and I could see only a bottomless darkness with spectral patches of crimson and purple floating therein. Yet if I could not see, I could hear. Out of this darkness came a sound, a sound like the angry hum one can hear if one puts one's ear outside a hive of bees, a sound out of that enormous hollow, it may be, four miles beneath our feet. For a moment I listened, then tightened my grip on my crowbar and led the way up the gallery. This must be the shaft we looked down upon, said Cavour, under that lid, and below there is where we saw the lights. The lights, said he, yes, the lights of the world that now we shall never see. Well, come back, I said, for now we had escaped so much I was rashly sanguine that we should recover the sphere. His answer I did not catch. Eh? I asked. It doesn't matter, he answered, and we hurried on in silence. I suppose that slanting lateral way was four or five miles long, allowing for its curvature, and it ascended at a slope that would have made it almost impossibly steep on earth, but which one strode up easily under lunar conditions. We saw only two selenites during all that portion of our flight, and directly they became aware of us, they ran headlong. It was clear that the knowledge of our strength and violence had reached them. Our way to the exterior was unexpectedly plain. The spiral gallery straightened into a steeply ascendant tunnel, its floor bearing abundant traces of the moon calves, and so straight and short in proportion to its vast arch that no part of it was absolutely dark. Almost immediately it began to lighten, and then far off and high up, and quite blindingly brilliant appeared its opening on the exterior, a slope of alpine steepness surmounted by a crest of bayonet shrub, tall and broken down now, and dry and dead in spiky silhouette against the sun. And it is strange that we men, to whom this very vegetation had seemed so weird and horrible a little time ago, should now behold it with the emotion a homecoming exile might feel at sight of his native land. We welcomed even the rareness of the air that made us pant as we ran, and which rendered speaking no longer the easy thing than it had been, but an effort to make oneself heard. Larger grew the sunlit circle above us, and larger, and all the nearer tunnel sank into a rim of indistinguishable black. We saw the dead bayonet shrub no longer with any touch of green in it, but brown and dry and thick, and the shadow of its upper branches, high out of sight, made a densely interlaced pattern upon the tumbled rocks. 
and at the immediate mouth of the tunnel was a wide trampled space where the moon calves had come and gone. We came out upon this space at last into a light and heat that hit and pressed upon us. We traversed the exposed area painfully and clambered up a slope among the scrubbed stems and sat down at last panting in a high place beneath the shadow of a mass of twisted lava. Even in the shade the rock felt hot. The air was intensely hot and we were in great physical discomfort, but for all that we were no longer in a nightmare. We seemed to have come to our own province again, beneath the stars. All the fear and stress of our flight through the dim passages and fissures below had fallen from us. That last fight had filled us with an enormous confidence in ourselves, so far as the Selenites were concerned. We looked back almost incredulously at the black opening from which we had just emerged. Down there it was, in a blue glow that now in our memory seemed the next thing to absolute darkness. We had met with things like mad mockeries of men, helmet-headed creatures, and had walked in fear before them, and had submitted to them until we could submit no longer. And behold, they had smashed like wax and scattered like chaff, and fled and vanished like the creatures of a dream. I rubbed my eyes, doubting whether we had not slept and dreamt these things by reason of the fungus we had eaten, and suddenly discovered the blood upon my face, and then that my shirt was sticking painfully to my shoulder and arm. Confound it! I said, gauging my injuries with an investigatory hand, and suddenly that distant tunnel mouth became, as it were, a watching eye. Cavour, I said, what are they going to do now? And what are we going to do? He shook his head, with his eyes fixed upon the tunnel. How can one tell what they will do? It depends on what they think of us, and I don't see how we can begin to guess that. And it depends what they have in reserve. It's as you say, Cavour. We have touched the merest outside of this world. They may have all sorts of things inside there. Even with those shooting things, they might make it bad for us. Yet, after all, I said, even if we don't find the sphere at once, there is a chance for us. We might hold out, even through the night. We might go down there again and make a fight for it. I stared about me with speculative eyes. The character of the scenery had altered altogether by reason of the enormous growth and subsequent drying of the scrub. The crest on which we sat was high and commanded a wide prospect of the crater landscape, and we saw it now all sere and dry in the late autumn of the lunar afternoon. Rising one behind the other were long slopes and fields of trampled brown where the moon calves had pastured, and far away, in the full blaze of the sun, a drove of them basked slumberously, scattered shapes, each with a blot of shadow against it, like sheep on the side of a down. But never a sign of a selenite was to be seen. Whether they had fled on our emergence from the interior passages, or whether they were accustomed to retire after driving out the moon calves, I cannot guess. At the time I believed the former was the case. If we were to set fire to all this stuff, I said, we might find the sphere among the ashes. Cavour did not seem to hear me. He was peering under his hand at the stars that still, in spite of the intense sunlight, were abundantly visible in the sky. How long do you think we've been here? 
he asked at last. Been where? On the moon. Two earthly days, perhaps? More nearly ten. Do you know the sun is past its zenith and sinking in the west? In four days' time or less, it will be night. But we've only eaten once. I know that. And, but there are the stars. But why should time seem different because we are on a smaller planet? I don't know. There it is. How does one tell time? Hunger, fatigue, all those things are different. Everything is different. Everything. To me, it seems that since first we came out of the sphere has been only a question of hours, long hours at most. Ten days, I said. That leaves... I looked up at the sun for a moment and then saw that it was halfway from the zenith to the western edge of things. Four days, Cavour. We mustn't sit here and dream. How do you think we may begin? I stood up. We must get a fixed point we can recognise. We might hoist a flag or a handkerchief or something and quarter the ground and work round that. He stood up beside me. Yes, he said. There is nothing for it but to hunt the sphere. Nothing. We may find it. Certainly we may find it. And if not, we must keep looking. He looked this way and that, glanced up at the sky and down at the tunnel, and astonished me by a sudden gesture of impatience. Oh, but we have done foolishly. To have come to this pass, think how it might have been, and the things we might have done. We might do something yet. Never the thing we might have done. Here below our feet is a world. Think of what that world must be. Think of that machine we saw, and the lid, and the shaft. They were just remote outlying things, and those creatures we have seen and fought with no more than ignorant peasants, dwellers in the outskirts, yokels and labourers half akin to brutes. Down below, caverns beneath caverns, tunnels, structures, ways, it must open out and be greater and wider and more populous as one descends. Assuredly, right down at the last, the central sea that washes round the core of the moon. Think of its inky waters under the spare lights, if indeed their eyes need lights. Think of the cascading tributaries pouring down their channels to feed it. Think of the tides upon its surface and the rush and swirl of its ebb and flow. Perhaps they have ships that go upon it. Perhaps down there are mighty cities and swarming ways and wisdom and order passing the wit of man. And we may die here upon it and never see the masters who must be ruling over these things. We may freeze and die here, and the air will freeze and thaw upon us, and then, then they will come upon us, come upon our stiff and silent bodies, and find the sphere we cannot find, and they will understand at last, too late, all the thought and effort that ended here in vain. His voice, for all that speech, sounded like the voice of someone heard in a telephone weak and far away. But the darkness, I said. One might get over that. How? I don't know. How am I to know? One might carry a torch, one might have a lamp. The others might understand. He stood for a moment with his hands held down and a rueful face, 
staring out over the waste that defied him. Then with a gesture of renunciation, he turned towards me with proposals for the systematic hunting of the sphere. We can return, I said. He looked about him. First of all, we shall have to get to earth. We could bring back lamps to carry and climbing irons and a hundred necessary things. Yes, he said. We can take back an earnest of success in this gold. He looked at my golden crowbars and said nothing for a space. He stood with his hands clasped behind his back, staring across the crater. At last he signed and spoke. It was I found the way here, but to find a way isn't always to be master of a way. If I take my secret back to earth, what will happen? I do not see how I can keep my secret for a year, for even a part of a year. Sooner or later it must come out, even if other men rediscover it. And then... Governments and powers will struggle to get hither. They will fight against one another and against these moon people. It will only spread warfare and multiply the occasions of war. In a little while, in a very little while, if I tell my secret, this planet to its deepest galleries will be strewn with human dead. Other things are doubtful, but that is certain. It is not as though man had any use for the moon. What good would the moon be to men? even of their own planet. What have they made but a battleground and theatre of infinite folly? Small as his world is, and short as his time, he has still in his little life down there far more than he can do. No, science has toiled too long forging weapons for fools to use. It is time she held her hand. Let him find it out for himself again in a thousand years' time. There are methods of secrecy, I said. He looked up at me and smiled. After all, he said, why should one worry? There is little chance of our finding the sphere. Down below things are brewing. Simply the human habit of hoping till we die that makes us think of return. Our troubles are only beginning. We have shown these moon folk violence. We have given them a taste of our quality and our chances are about as good as a tiger's that has got loose and killed a man in Hyde Park. The news of us must be running down from gallery to gallery, down towards the central parts. No Satan beings will ever let us take that sphere back to earth after so much as they have seen of us. We aren't improving our chances, said I, by sitting here. We stood up side by side. After all, he said, we must separate, we must stick up a handkerchief on these tall spikes here and fasten it firmly, and from this, as a centre, we must work over the crater. You must go westward, moving out in semicircles to and fro towards the setting sun. You must move first with your shadow on your right until it is at right angles with the direction of your handkerchief, and then with your shadow on your left. And I will do the same to the east. We will look into every gully, examine every scurry of rocks. We will do all we can to find my sphere. If we see the selenites, we will hide from them as well as we can. For drink, we must take snow. And if we feel the need of food, we must kill a moon calf, if we can, and each such flesh as it has, raw, and so each will go his own way. And if one of us comes upon the sphere, he must come back 
to the white handkerchief and stand by it and signal to the other. And if neither? Cavour glanced up at the sun. We go on seeking until the night and cold overtakes us. Suppose the Selenites have found the sphere and hidden it. He shrugged his shoulders. Or if presently they come hunting us? He made no answer. You had better take a club, I said. He shook his head and stared away from me across the waist. But for a moment he did not start. He looked round at me shyly, hesitated. Au revoir, he said. I felt an odd stab of emotion. A sense of how we had galled each other, and particularly how I must have galled him, came to me. Confound it, thought I. We might have done better. I was on the point of asking him to shake hands, for that somehow was how I felt just then, when he put his feet together and leapt away from me towards the north. He seemed to drift through the air as a dead leaf would do, fell lightly and leapt again. I stood for a moment watching him, then faced westward, reluctantly, pulled myself together, and with something of the feeling of a man who leaps into icy water, selected a leaping point and plunged forward to explore my solitary half of the moon world. I dropped rather clumsily among rocks, stood up and looked about me, clambered onto a rocky slab, and leapt again. When presently I looked for Cavour, he was hidden from my eyes, but the handkerchief showed out bravely on its headland, white in the blaze of the sun. I determined not to lose sight of that handkerchief, whatever might be tied. End of chapter 18Chapter 19 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 19 Mr. Bedford Alone In a little while it seemed to me as though I had always been alone on the moon. I hunted for a time with a certain intentness, but the heat was still very great and the thinness of the air felt like a hoop about one's chest. I came presently into a hollow basin bristling with tall, brown, dry fronds about its edge, and I sat down under these to rest and cool. I intended to rest for only a little while. I put down my clubs beside me and sat resting my chin on my hands. I saw with a sort of colourless interest that the rocks of the basin, where here and there the crackling dry lichens had shrunk away to show them, were all veined and splattered with gold, that here and there bosses of rounded and wrinkled gold projected from among the litter. What did that matter now? A sort of languor had possession of my limbs and mind. I did not believe for a moment that we should ever find the sphere in that vast desiccated wilderness. I seemed to lack a motive for effort until the Selenite should come. Then I supposed I should exert myself, obeying that unreasonable imperative that urges a man before all things to preserve and defend his life, albeit he may preserve it only to die more painfully in a little while. Why had we come to the moon? The thing presented itself to me as a perplexing problem. What is this spirit in man that urges him forever to depart from happiness and security, to toil, to place himself in danger, to risk even a reasonable certainty of death? 
it dawned upon me that there in the moon is a thing I ought always to have known, that man is not made simply to go about being safe and comfortable and well-fed and amused. Almost any man, if you put the thing to him, not in words, but in the shape of opportunities, will show that he knows as much. Against his interest, against his happiness, he is constantly being driven to do unreasonable things. Some force not himself impels him, and go he must. But why? Why? Sitting there in the midst of that useless moon gold, amidst the things of another world, I took count of all my life. Assuming I was to die a castaway upon the moon, I failed altogether to see what purpose I had served. I got no light on that point, but at any rate, it was clearer to me than it had ever been in my life before that I was not serving my own purpose, that all my life I had in truth never served the purposes of my private life. Whose purposes, what purposes, was I serving? I ceased to speculate on why we had come to the moon and took a wider sweep. Why had I come to the earth? Why had I a private life at all? I lost myself at last in bottomless speculations. My thoughts became vague and cloudy, no longer leading in definite directions. I had not felt heavy or weary. I cannot imagine one doing so upon the moon, but I suppose I was greatly fatigued. At any rate, I slept. Slumbering there rested me greatly, I think, and the sun was setting and the violence of the heat abating through all the time I slumbered. When at last I was roused from my slumbers by a remote clamour, I felt active and capable again. I rubbed my eyes and stretched my arms. I rose to my feet, I was a little stiff, and at once prepared to resume my search. I shouldered my golden clubs, one on each shoulder, and went on out of the ravine of the gold-veined rocks. The sun was certainly lower, much lower than it had been. The air was very much cooler. I perceived I must have slept some time. It seemed to me that a faint touch of misty blueness hung about the western cliff. I leapt to a little boss of rock and surveyed the crater. I could see no signs of moon calves or selenites, nor could I see Cavour, but I could see my handkerchief far off, spread out on its thicket of thorns. I looked about me and then leapt forward to the next convenient viewpoint. I beat my way round in a semicircle and back again in a still remoter crescent. It was very fatiguing and hopeless. The air was really very much cooler, and it seemed to me that the shadow under the westward cliff was growing broad. Ever and again I stopped and reconnoitred, but there was no sign of Cavour, no sign of Selenites, and it seemed to me the moon calves must have been driven into the interior again. I could see none of them. I became more and more desirous of seeing Cavour. The winged outline of the sun had sunk now until it was scarcely the distance of its diameter from the rim of the sky. I was oppressed by the idea that the Selenites would presently close their lids and valves and shut us out under the inexorable onrush of the lunar night. It seemed to me high time that he abandoned his search and that we took counsel together. I felt how urgent it was that we should decide soon upon our course. We had failed to find the sphere, we no longer had time to seek it, and once these valves were closed with us outside, we were lost men. 
the great night of space would descend upon us, that blackness of the void which is the only absolute death. All my being shrank from that approach. We must get into the moon again, though we were slain in doing it. I was haunted by a vision of our freezing to death, of our hammering with our last strength on the valve of the great pit. I took no thought any more of the sphere, I thought only of finding Cavour again. I was half inclined to go back into the moon without him, rather than seek him until it was too late. I was already halfway back towards our handkerchief when, suddenly, I saw the sphere. I did not find it so much as it found me. It was lying much farther to the westward than I had gone, and the sloping rays of the sinking sun reflected from its glass had suddenly proclaimed its presence in a dazzling beam. For an instant I thought this was some new device of the Selenites against us, and then I understood. I threw up my arms, shouted a ghostly shout, and set off in vast leaps towards it. I missed one of my leaps and dropped into a deep ravine and twisted my ankle, and after that I stumbled at almost every leap. I was in a state of hysterical agitation, trembling violently and quite breathless long before I got to it. Three times at least I had to stop with my hands resting on my side, and in spite of the thin dryness of the air, the perspiration was wet upon my face. I thought of nothing but the sphere until I reached it. I forgot even my trouble of Cavour's whereabouts. My last leap flung me with my hands hard against its glass. Then I lay against it, panting, and trying vainly to shout, Cavour, here is the sphere! When I had recovered a little, I peered through the thick glass, and the things inside seemed tumbled. I stooped to peer closer. Then I attempted to get in. I had to hoist it over a little to get my head through the manhole. The screw stopper was inside, and I could see now that nothing had been touched. Nothing had suffered. It lay there as we had left it when we had dropped out amidst the snow. For a time I was wholly occupied in making and remaking this inventory. I found I was trembling violently. It was good to see that familiar dark interior again. I cannot tell you how good. Presently I crept inside and sat down among the things. I looked through the glass at the moon world and shivered. I placed my gold clubs upon the table and sought out and took a little food. Not so much because I wanted it, but because it was there. Then it occurred to me that it was time to go out and signal for Cavour. But I did not go out and signal for Cavour forthwith. Something held me to the sphere. After all, everything was coming right. There would still be time for us to get more of the magic stone that gives one mastery over men. Away there, close handy was gold for the picking up, and the sphere would travel as well half full of gold as though it were empty. We could go back now, masters of ourselves and our world, and then I roused myself at last and with an effort got myself out of the sphere. I shivered as I emerged, for the evening air was growing very cold. I stood in the hollow, staring about me. I scrutinised the bushes round me very carefully before I leapt to the rocky shelf hard by, and took once more what had been my first leap in the moon. But now I made it with no effort whatever. The growth and decay of the vegetation had gone on apace, and the whole aspect of the rocks had changed, but still it was possible to make out the slope on which the seeds had germinated, and the rocky mass from which we had taken our first view of the crater. 
But the spiky shrub on the slope stood brown and sear now, and thirty feet high, and cast long shadows that stretched out of sight, and the little seeds that clustered in its upper branches were brown and ripe. Its work was done, and it was brittle and ready to fall and crumple under the freezing air so soon as the nightfall came. And the huge cacti that had swollen as we watched them had long since burst and scattered their spores to the four quarters of the moon. Amazing little corner in the universe, the landing place of men. Some day, thought I, I will have an inscription standing there right in the midst of the hollow. It came to me, if only this teeming world within knew of the full import of the moment, how furious its tumult would become. But as yet it could scarcely be dreaming of the significance of our coming. For if it did, the crater would surely be an uproar of pursuit, instead of as still as death. I looked about for some place from which I might signal Cavour, and saw that same patch of rock to which he had leapt from my present standpoint, still bare and barren in the sun. For a moment I hesitated at going so far from the sphere. Then with a pang of shame at that hesitation, I leapt. From this vantage point I surveyed the crater again. Far away at the top of the enormous shadow I cast was the little white handkerchief fluttering on the bushes. It was very little and very far and Cavour was not in sight. It seemed to me that by this time he ought to be looking for me. That was the agreement, but he was nowhere to be seen. I stood waiting and watching, hands shading my eyes, expecting every moment to distinguish him. Very probably I stood there for quite a long time. I tried to shout, and was reminded of the thinness of the air. I made an undecided step back towards the sphere but a lurking dread of the Selenites made me hesitate to signal my whereabouts by hoisting one of our sleeping blankets onto the adjacent scrub. I searched the crater again. It had an effect of emptiness that chilled me, and it was still. Any sound from the Selenites in the world beneath had died away. It was as still as death, save for the faint stir of the shrub about me and the little breeze that was rising. There was no sound nor shadow of a sound and the breeze blew chill. Confound Cavour! I took a deep breath. I put my hands to the sides of my mouth. Cavour! I bawled, and the sound was like some mannequin shouting far away. I looked at the handkerchief. I looked behind me at the broadening shadow of the westward cliff. I looked under my hand at the sun. It seemed to me that almost visibly it was creeping down the sky. I felt I must act instantly if I was to save Cavour. I whipped off my vest and flung it as a mark on the sear bayonets of the shrubs behind me and then set off in a straight line towards the handkerchief. Perhaps it was a couple of miles away, a matter of a few hundred leaps and strides. I have already told how one seemed to hang through those lunar leaps. In each suspense I sought Cavour and marvelled why he should be hidden. In each leap I could feel the sun setting behind me. Each time I touched the ground I was tempted to go back. At last leap I was in the depression below our handkerchief. Astride and I stood on our former vantage point within arm's reach of it. I stood up straight and scanned the world about me between its lengthening bars of shadow. Far away down a long declivity was the opening of the tunnel up which we had fled and my shadow reached towards it, stretched towards it, 
and touched it like a finger of the night. Not a sign of Kabor, not a sound in all the stillness, only the stir and waving of the scrub and of the shadows increased. And suddenly and violently I shivered. Kov, I began, and realised once more the uselessness of the human voice in that thin air. Silence. The silence of death. Then it was my eye caught something, a little thing lying, perhaps fifty yards away down the slope, amidst the litter of bent and broken branches. What was it? I knew, and yet for some reason I would not know. I went nearer to it. It was the little cricket cap Cavour had worn. I did not touch it. I stood looking at it. I saw then that the scattered branches about it had been forcibly smashed and trampled. I hesitated, stepped forward and picked it up. I stood with Cavour's cap in my hand, staring at the trampled reeds and thorns about me. On some of them were little smears of something dark, something that I dared not touch. A dozen yards away, perhaps, the rising breeze dragged something into view, something small and vividly white. It was a little piece of paper crumpled tightly, as though it had been clutched tightly. I picked it up, and on it were smears of red. My eye caught faint pencil marks. I smoothed it out and saw uneven and broken writing ending at last in a crooked streak upon the paper. I set myself to decipher this. I have been injured about the knee. I think my kneecap is hurt, and I cannot run or crawl, it began, pretty distinctly written. Then, less legibly, they have been chasing me for some time, and it is only a question of the word time, seem to have been written here and erased in favour of something illegible. Before they get me, they are beating all about me. Then the writing became convulsive. I can hear them, I guess the tracing meant, and then it was quite unreadable for a space. Then came a little string of words that were quite distinct. A different sort of selenite altogether, who appears to be directing the... The writing became a mere hasty confusion again. They have larger brain cases, much larger, and slenderer bodies, and very short legs. They make gentle noises and move with organised deliberation. And though I am wounded and helpless here, their appearance still gives me hope. That was like Cavour. They have not shot at me or attempted. Injury. I intend... Then came the sudden streak of the pencil across the paper, and on the back and edges, blood. And as I stood there, stupid and perplexed, with this dumbfounding relic in my hand, something very soft and light and chill touched my hand for a moment and ceased to be, and then a thing, a little white speck, drifted athwart a shadow. It was a tiny snowflake, the first snowflake, the herald of the night. I looked up with a start, and the sky had darkened almost to blackness, and was thick with a gathering multitude of coldly watchful stars. I looked eastward, and the light of that shriveled world was touched with sombre bronze. Westward, and the sun robbed now by a thickening white mist of half its heat and splendour, was touching the crater rim, was sinking out of sight, and all the shrubs and jagged tumbled rocks stood out against it in a bristling disorder of black shapes. Into the great lake of darkness westward, a vast wreath of mist was sinking. A cold wind set all the crater shivering. Suddenly, for a moment, I was in a puff of falling snow, and all the world about me, grey and dim, 
And then it was I heard, not loud and penetrating as at first, but faint and dim like a dying voice, that tolling, that same tolling that had welcomed the coming of the day. Boom, boom, boom. It echoed about the crater. It seemed to throb with the throbbing of the greater stars. The blood-red crescent of the sun's disk sank as it tolled out. Boom, boom, boom. What had happened to Cavour? All through that tolling I stood there stupidly, and at last the tolling ceased. And suddenly the open mouth of the tunnel down below there shut like an eye and vanished out of sight. Then indeed was I alone. Over me, around me, closing in on me, embracing me ever nearer, was the Eternal, that which was before the beginning, and that which triumphs over the end that enormous void in which all light and life and being is but the thin and vanishing splendour of a falling star, the cold, the stillness, the silence, the infinite and final night of space. The sense of solitude and desolation became the sense of an overwhelming presence that stooped towards me, that almost touched me. No, I cried, no, not yet, not yet, wait, wait, oh wait. My voice went up to a shriek. I flung the crumpled paper from me, scrambled back to the crest to take my bearings, and then, with all the will that was in me, leapt out towards the mark I had left, dim and distant now in the very margin of the shadow. Leap, 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 and each leap was seven ages. Before me the pale serpent-girdled section of the sun sank and sank, and the advancing shadow swept to seize the sphere before I could reach it. I was two miles away, a hundred leaps or more, and the air about me was thinning out as it thins under an air pump, and the cold was gripping at my joints. But had I died, I should have died leaping. Once and then again my foot slipped on the gathering snow as I leapt and shortened my leap. Once I fell short into bushes that crashed and smashed into dusty chips and nothingness. And once I stumbled as I dropped and rolled head over heels into a gully, and rose bruised and bleeding and confused as to my direction. But such incidents were as nothing to the intervals, those awful pauses when one drifted through the air towards that pouring tide of night. My breathing made a piping noise, and it was as though knives were whirling in my lungs. My heart seemed to beat against the top of my brain. Shall I reach it? Oh heaven, shall I reach it? My whole being became anguish. Lie down, screamed my pain and despair, lie down. The nearer I struggled, the more awfully remote it seemed. I was numb, I stumbled, I bruised and cut myself and did not bleed. It was in sight. I fell on all fours and my lungs whooped. I crawled, the frost gathered on my lips, icicles hung from my moustache. I was white with the freezing atmosphere. I was a dozen yards from it. My eyes had become dim. Lie down, screamed despair, lie down. I touched it and halted. Too late, screamed despair, lie down. I fought stiffly with it. I was on the manhole lip, a stupefied, half-dead being. The snow was all about me. I pulled myself in. There lurked within a little warmer air. The snowflakes, the air flakes, danced in about me as I tried with chilling hands to thrust the valve in and spin it tight and hard. I sobbed. I will, I chattered in my teeth. 
and then, with fingers that quivered and felt brittle, I turned to the shutter studs. As I fumbled with the switches, for I had never controlled them before, I could see dimly through the steaming glass the blazing red streamers of the sinking sun, dancing and flickering through the snowstorm, and the black forms of the scrub thickening and bending and breaking beneath the accumulating snow. Thicker whirled the snow and thicker black against the light. What if even now the switches overcame me? Then something clicked under my hands, and in an instant that last vision of the moon world was hidden from my eyes. I was in the silence and darkness of the interplanetary sphere. End of chapter 19